show. The no make it show. Yeah, uh-huh. Clash momentarily for class solidarity. Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency. Greed from elites, oligarchs, stay fed. Deep state, faith fed. Everybody break bread. Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion in this melted pot. We live in time to build a new system. Unionize labor rights. Highlight the issue. Talking heads left is best. The saga continues. Continues. The No Miki Show. Hello and welcome to the Nomiki Show. I am Nomiki Khan. It's Wednesday, May 26th. Uh, so we have some spiciness coming out of the Capitol with Senator Elizabeth Warren. And I wanted to share this, uh, this video with you and react to it because she is not giving up and holding Jamie Dimon uh, and the big banks accountable for exposing basically taking advantage of people during the pandemic. Let's roll this clip. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. As the pandemic swept across our nation, bank regulators worried about the health of our biggest banks. So the regulators were generous. They gave the banks all kinds of help. They delayed compliance for important regulations. They relaxed standards. They even allowed banks to avoid paying overdraft fees if their accounts at the Federal Reserve had a negative balance. Now, when asked why they were being so generous to the banks, the regulators explained that the banks would, in turn, help their customers. So how exactly did that work out? At the start of the pandemic, bank regulators issued joint guidance that recommended that banks waive overdraft fees for their own customers. In other words, if someone was laid off, for example, and bounced a check, The regulators recommended that the bank automatically waive the fees and let people get caught up without paying $35 every time they stumbled. The same way the bank could do at the Fed if it overdrew its account. So let me ask the CEOs of the four banks, Citibank, Bank of America, Chase, and Wells Fargo, the four banks that collectively manage tens of millions of checking accounts for customers. While you automatically and at no cost got complete protection from overdraft fees at the Federal Reserve, could you please raise your hand if you gave the same automatic protection to your customers and automatically waived all of their overdraft fees? Okay, I'm not seeing anyone raise a hand. And that's because none of you gave the same help to your customers that the bank regulators extended to you help that the bank regulators recommended that you give. So let me focus in on this just a a little bit here. Um, Let me start with you, uh, if I can, um, and ask the question uh, about whether or not um, any of you, you didn't automatically waive. I just want to take this on down. So let's take a look at who actually paid these fees. According to Pew Charitable Trusts, it's disproportionately working people making less than $50,000 a year, African-Americans, Hispanics, people who are struggling to get by. And how much did they pay in overdraft fees? They paid a combined $4 billion. So let me start with you, Mr. Diamond. You are the star of the overdraft show. Your bank, J.P. Morgan, collects more than seven times as much money in overdraft fees per account than your competitors. So, Mr. Diamond, how much did J.P. Morgan collect in overdraft fees from their consumers in 2020? Well, I think your numbers are totally inaccurate, but we'll have to sit down privately and go through that. These are public numbers. And I also also want to point out we did not overdraft. Can can you just answer my question? How much did J.P. Morgan collect? We did not overdraft at the Fed account. And at any request, so you never, I'm sorry, Mr. Diamond, that was, Mr. Diamond, that was not the question. Did you, you had an automatic protection. So I'm asking. You were recommended, the regulators recommended you offer that same kind of protection to your customers. How much, in fact, did J.P. Morgan collect in overdraft fees from their customers in 2020? Do you know the number? 
I don't know the number in front of me, but well, we I actually, actually have upon, the number in front of me. Upon it's request, $1.463 billion. That's nearly $1.5 billion that you collected from your customers. Now, do you know how much J.P. Morgan's profit would have been in 2020 if you had followed the recommendation of the regulators and waived overdraft fees to help struggling consumers? In other words, without that overdraft money, would your bank have been in financial trouble? We waived the fees for customers upon request if they were un under stress because of COVID. You know, I, I appreciate that you want to duck this question. Do you know how much your profits would have been if you'd actually waived all the fees as the, rec we, as we, the regulators we waived, recommended? We waived the fees every time. The answer is your profits would have been $27.6 billion. I did the math for you. So here's the thing. You and your colleagues come in today to talk about how you stepped up and took care of customers during the pandemic. And it's a bunch of baloney. In fact, it's about $4 billion worth of baloney, but you can fix that right now. Mr. Diamond, will you commit right now to refund $1.5 billion you took from consumers during the pandemic? No. Right now? No. No. That's right. Over the past year, you could have passed on the breaks that you got from the Fed to your customers, but you didn't do it. Everybody else here, those other three bankers, will any of you agree to refund the overdraft fees that you collected? I didn't think so. So no matter how you try to spin it, this past year has shown that corporate profits are more important to your bank than offering just a little help to struggling families, even when we are in the middle of a worldwide crisis. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. So this is, I, I mean, I wanted to watch this in full, the full video, because this exchange is extraordinary. Um, this is a man who, whose banks have put money in the pockets of both Democrats and Republicans, as we know. This happened just as, right now in Washington, there is, uh, they're having these hearings left and right, and and they're related to the pandemic. Um, simultaneously, to just just today, uh, Nidia Velasquez, who's a congresswoman from New York City, slammed the Biden administration and Janet Yellen in particular because Janet Yellen, who is, and, and, and this is on a small business uh, committee, the House chair of the Small Business Caucus is Nidia Velasquez, so just, just some context. But she slams Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen for declining to appear at a committee hearing, saying that, Specifically, she's disregarding the law that you can't decline. Even Steven Mnuchin, he showed up at these hearings. And it's all over the fact that the Biden administration has been slow to roll out PPP um, for a Paycheck Protection Program uh, in, in, in partnership with the Small Business Administration, whose administrator is Isabel Guzman, who did testify um, on Wednesday, which is today, of course. So this is all happening simultaneously. Like you have the banking industry, which refuses just ruthlessly refuses to reverse these overdraft fees, which they can, of course, afford to do so. And that is what Elizabeth Warren was making the case for, that they're going to get the profits no matter what. Not only that, they're getting bailed, once again, bailed out in different ways and forms. But if they're going to get bailed out, then they need to take care of the people who, without a choice, had to stay home, didn't, were not able to work. How many contractors uh, decided you, you, you had no choice but to stay home? Or you know, now you have this crisis with Uber drivers and, and Lyft drivers where uh, they're not working because they realized it was a smarter option for them to be not, there's not as many drivers available, a smarter option for them to stay home and have at least some sort of uh, government supplement, I guess, because their wages were so low. So it's interesting to see this dynamic play out. The ramifications, what we're dealing with right now in Congress is how our economy is going to survive after COVID. And I don't think that there's any sense right now of how bad it's gonna get, whether it's Senator Warren taking on the big banks right now and saying, you have to do something because people were literally dying and you were charging them overdraft fees because they couldn't show up to work, they couldn't uh, pay for their groceries, they couldn't even get access to groceries, they're living off of credit if they had credit. 
being evicted from their homes and you thought it was it, it was fair to charge $35 in overdrafts for each overdraft. So good on her, good on her. And I hope she holds her fellow senators who are not usually supportive of taking on big banks. I hope that she holds them accountable for backing her up. Because this is a working class issue. And simultaneously, good on uh, Congresswoman Velasquez for calling out Janet Yellen, who is supposed to be like sort of the progressive Treasury Secretary. Uh-huh. She can't even show up. She can't even show up for a committee meeting because the Biden administration has been slow to roll out their promises in protecting small businesses. How many small businesses cannot afford to pay their rent, have not paid their rent? The statistics last year in New York City alone were jarring. It was over 70% of small businesses had not been able to pay their rent, and then the number just kept climbing. We don't know what the evictions crisis is even going to look like yet. We don't know how many small businesses are going to shut down yet because there have been all these promises for assistance. So while the big banks are getting bailed out once again, working people, small businesses are suffering. That is disaster capitalism because who swoops in and takes advantage of those empty storefronts? Who swoops in and buys out or takes up all that empty real estate because people have been evicted or, or small and mid-level uh, um, uh, homeowners um, and, and, and landlords can't afford to keep their properties anymore. It's the big real estate companies. It's the banks that in. It's the big companies. This is what happens. So we have to do something. Washington has to do something because we still don't even understand how bad this economy is. We still don't understand what the numbers are gonna look like. We still don't understand how many people are going to be unhoused. And the Biden administration is frozen, frozen right now. Or maybe they're behind the scenes talking about how far they can go with these industries that helped get them in power and the Democratic Party in power. All right, we have a wonderful show today. Uh, we are, uh, it is it is Wednesday and we, I guess I'm having some video problems here. I did not know this, let me take a look. What's going on with my video? Are we good? Uh, hopefully it's okay. Uh, but we have a wonderful show today. We have Daniel Levine, who's gonna be on to talk about his new book. Uh, it is, okay, I am frozen. Am I not? I'm sorry, guys, I am in a new place. Uh, Daniel Levine is the author of Proof of Life, 20 Days on the Hunt for a Missing Person in the Mideast, Middle East. And then later we have Jordan Zacharin and Natalie Shore to talk about today's news. I'm gonna try to figure out what's going on with my, uh, my video. We'll be back in a second. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. I think we're good on video. Uh, I was having a little bit of a connectivity issue. This is what happens when you are in a on an island where disaster capitalism has been uh, present. And that is, we are in, of course, uh, San Juan, Puerto Rico, and I'm constantly having issues with power to this day. Uh, Daniel Levine, thank you for joining us. He is the author of Proof of Life, 20 Days on the Hunt for a Missing Person in the Middle East. Uh, Daniel Levine, you, you spent your early years as a son of a di diplomat in the Middle East and in Africa. Uh, so I imagine you, you've, you've come into this with a different lens. Are you, there you are, there you are. So um, Daniel, thanks for joining us. Can, can you tell us, this is, this is a fascinating story uh, that you've laid out. You were at your office when you got a call from an acquaintance with a cryptic message. Uh, can you tell us what happened? I can. First, thanks for having me, first of all. I, this is in late 2014. Uh, I run a foundation in Europe that works in war zones and failed states all over the world, really. A lot of Middle East and Africa right now. Uh, and uh, we had been in, involved in Syria early in the Civil War, 2012 and early 13, because we, at the time when the war was really undecided in the sense that there wasn't, the Assad wasn't really getting ahead. This is before the Russian intervention that bailed him out in 2015. Uh, there was still a willingness of all the sides to figure out some possible mediated solution, some form of ro power rotation. Uh, and this was all happening behind the scenes. And our, uh, our participation was that we were working with a group of young people identified by each group, essentially, and took them out of the country and prepared them for future leadership if the killing ever stopped. That was the work at the time. 
It later on came to a crashing halt when the war tipped and Assad no longer was in any way motivated in, in helping. And then you also had in the surge of the Islamists from Iraq and other places in late 14. But so uh, in the course of those years, there were some Westerners who were kidnapped. And because we were really active in Syria, and I spent a lot of time there, uh, we were approached several times by families, sometimes by governments, to see if we could get information on the missing people. And so this book is one such request that came to me in late 2014, way after we had ended that project uh, in huge disappointment, actually. And, uh, and this was an unusual story. And the reason I started, one of the reasons I decided to write it is because it was really contained over 20 days. And it's one of those experiences that brought me into contact with this entire sort of gruesome war and its economy and, and what, what keeps this war alive, the war economy, in a really visceral way. And so I decided to write a book about it. Uh, so who was this person uh, that you were meeting with um, in Paris and, and what, what were they what were they disclosing to you? Who was missing? Uh, initially, yeah, it wasn't, he made, it didn't make it clear. It turned out ultimately that in the end had a very close family relation to the missing person. He described it to me as the son of one of his closest friends who had ventured into Syria kind of as an adventurer, not really knowing that how dangerous it would be across the border, uh, as does happen once in a while. Um, and uh, that everyone was crushed, that no one had any had received any sign, and that the family also wasn't getting any guidance from the government, from the intelligence community, and didn't really know what to do. Should they make it public? Should they give media interviews? Should they appeal publicly to the Syrian government? What should they do? And initially, I didn't really want to touch it because I didn't have such a close relationship with the person who asked me for this favor, and I also had just had a really crushing experience with a different hostage. And so uh, I really wanted, but I felt myself kind of roped into it that uh, before I had a chance to really say, no, thank you, I found myself already in this story. And and then what happened? Did you go there? Uh... Yeah, what, what happened is uh, I made the first call to a, to a close friend of mine, a Saudi, uh, half Saudi, half Syrian actually, pretty well-connected person in the region who used to be a close advisor to the Saudi crown prince, Abdallah, before he became king, uh, a pretty progressive, uh, enlightened person, not only for that region, but in, in absolute terms. And uh, I, my first call was to him because he, he was someone, if he told me, don't touch it, either because he had no way to get any information or because there were some unsavory elements to it, for example, negotiations of ransom payments behind our backs and things like that, then I would not touch it. Uh, and uh, he got back to me and said that if uh, there was a chance to get information on the missing person, but I would have to meet him in Istanbul. Uh, and then from then, if he got the green light to take me further into this, uh, I would probably have to go to Beirut and spend a night uh, with a, a powerful local leader in Beirut who would then direct me on. Uh, and so that's how my whole, this whole hunt over these 20 days from uh, throughout, really throughout the Middle East, from the Middle East to the Persian Gulf then, how that really ensued. Why would any governments get involved in this? Why, why is it that they, they're hands off with these missing person situations? Well, this is a really messy question and it's a bit of an ugly answer, I suppose. Uh, it, it varies, so it, there's no one answer to this. There are some cases where the governments get involved, usually reluctantly, uh, because many governments, including the US, UK, have an official policy that they don't negotiate with kidnappers and they don't pay ransoms. And of course, the dirty little secret is that in some particular instances, with the right kinds of connections to the right kind of representatives uh, in the right party in power and so on and so on, uh, there are ransoms that can get negotiated. They're usually paid by third party, in many cases, Qatar. Uh, I cannot get involved in those cases, not only because it's illegal under U.S. law and you don't want to get caught in the crossfire, but also because if you ever get involved in a ransom negotiation, the expectation is you'll always be able to deliver a ransom in future cases where you have to help. And in most cases, you can't. The governments don't really want to get involved because there is no real good outcome for the governments. First of all, most people who get kidnapped have not been sent by the governments. They've either been freelancers, adventurers. One of the dirty secrets of many media companies and newspapers is that they don't like to send their own correspondence into war zones. 
So they take advantage of freelancers, of you know, students, uh, recent graduates of universities who want to make a name for themselves and think they can you know, deliver some dispatches or pictures and take on risks they're in no way equipped to take, marching into Yemen, marching into Syria, into Libya, into Congo. Uh, and, uh, and this happens the whole time. It's happening right now. There, I'm aware of 12 Westerners currently being held in Syria whose names have not been made public that you cannot find, you cannot Google these people. And so the governments usually say, unless we sent you, uh, you're really running at your own risk. There's a tra travel advisory at the State Department's website. And so if you go, you're going at your own peril. That's generally the rule. Part of the problem is depending on who's holding the person, let's say you are in Syria, if it's an Islamist group, Nusra, ISIS, whichever it is, generally it's in the context of a ransom payment. If it's the regime, the regime usually plays a really ugly game, which is they claim not to have the person because the moment they say that they have the person, they expose themselves to sanctions and all kinds of pressures. So there are very few happy outcomes. And the only way in the case of the regime that, let's say, the U.S. government would have any chance of getting an American released is by offering them, the regime, things that they don't want to offer, taking murderers off sanctions lists, unfreezing bank accounts of murderers and their families. And so it gets really messy. So usually the governments, and the U.S. included, tend to say nice things to the families, but don't really provide any help. And in those moments, if already there has been some kind of a public process going on, I usually refuse to get involved because there's very, very little I can do. The only ways to really be effective is if this, is, this can happen behind the scenes without the name being made public. So, so you were in Syria and you're, you're, you're hunting uh, for this, this missing uh, man, boy, um, and you stumble across, I mean, the, the, the figures that you had to deal with, uh, can you give the best of highlights of some of these uh, very, I guess, shady figures is probably the, a good descriptive word, maybe? Yeah, the, the best stuff is the worst stuff, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> right, correction. Right. Uh, there are, uh, I mean, what, what's really happening is that the, without giving any spoilers away what happened to the person, he essentially stumbled into a network of drug dealers. And the thing to realize about Syria is that everything is being traded. It really is a war economy, and this war is being kept alive by entirely only by the huge profits that very few people make. Uh, and and that's there's no ideology left. Of course, it's also for power, but at the end, it's really for power and wealth. And there are some individuals who are just making astronomical profits who have become not only millionaires and hundreds of millionaires, but also billionaires over the last 10 years. And uh, and so the human trade, meaning uh, not only uh, kidnapped Westerners, but also young girls taken from their villages and sold into sex slavery in the Middle East and in the Persian Gulf in particular, or the Arabian Gulf, uh, is as much part of the war economy as a drug trade. And this, uh, in my case, the young man had stumbled into a network of drug dealers, people who were dealing in this powerful amphetamine called Captagon, uh, which... Uh, so for me to get any information, I had to ultimately get close to this group of dealers. And they are, they are really kind of anything you could possibly imagine about a horrible person, they embody that. You know, not only callous towards suffering, but actually just making a living on the back of that suffering. And I had to figure out a way, once I did catch up with them, how do I extract that kind of information? These are people who are very powerful. So I can't intimidate them. They're really wealthy. I can't bait them with anything. They're, you know, many times over wealthier than I am. There's nothing I can bait them with. And I had to figure out a way to extract information in a way by manipulating them uh, without being found out. And so that that's kind of the, the that's the climax of the book. But that's, uh, th that's the difficulty is you're really not dealing with someone like you and I scheduled to have a conversation and we can have a polite conversation about an issue, even if we disagree. Uh, this is a completely different environment. It's really manipulative. They're just because they're bad people doesn't mean they're stupid people, quite the contrary. So I can't trick them into giving me information. I have to figure out a way to get them into a, into a mood where they either want to brag or they want to divulge something that could be useful to me. So you have to get them drunk? Yeah, drunk, drunk or drunk with their own, with their own, with their own awesomeness, essentially. Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we just lived through, you know, we just lived through four years or still perhaps exactly. of unbridled narcissism. So, yeah, it's the same kind of malignant narcissism syndrome that you that you, we encountered in our politics here. It's the same thing there. And and what is what, when they are holding somebody hostage or, or taking somebody? What what is their agenda? Whoever in, in Syria, for instance, 
I mean, the, the, you have hostages that are traded between warring parties. So there are instances where Nusra rebels catch someone near Aleppo, trade him to one of the militias affiliated with the regime for a profit. They trade him in return for diesel fuel or weapons to the ISIS in Raqqa, and they in turn trade him back to the regime. But this shouldn't really surprise you. I mean, the first thing that Bashar al-Assad did in in 2011, when the whole fighting started, other than beat to death a few 15-year-old boys, uh, the other next thing he did is release uh, Islamist prisoners from his prison. Uh, the same thing Saddam did after when the Gulf War started. The first thing he did is he released people who became essentially the core of ISIS afterwards, together with some Baptist army officers who had no job. So, you know, these ideologies are really connected. People who claim that these wars are about religion or about Sunnah, Shia divide, anything like that, are really out of their minds. It's really none of that there. They all get along just fine. Uh, I was in a meeting once in, in uh, Lebanon many years ago where I, I walked into a place where the leaders of the Sunni, Druze, Christian, and Shia groups were all having dinner together. And by day, they were bashing each other's heads, and by night, they were sharing a meal. So this is not- Only in Lebanon. <laughs> maybe only Lebanon, yeah. Maybe perhaps I wish we should take an example and figure out a way to talk to each other, yeah. But um, so, so humans were just traded that way for a profit or for a chip or as a barter. And so I've, I've witnessed the trades of- hostages and or young girls in return for heating fuel. Uh, you, you really see that. So it's really just a commodity. They've entirely turned just these people into assets. And those who are worst off and suffered the worst fates are the ones who really have no value. So if it's somebody who's Western and, and these, whoever takes them as hostage knows very well that the Western governments are not going to get involved, um, does the value go down? I mean, I mean, is it is it these independent kind of negotiators, hostage negotiators, and and folks like yourself who make them valuable? It depends on who has the person. So the most dangerous thing you can do is increase the value and then not be able to deliver what because again we're in an environment where I can't pay ransom. So. The first thing I tell families is please don't rush to the media before we know who has them. Uh, there are some very rare instances where it can help to create some public pressure, but it's very rare and usually only in connection with prisoners who are held by the regime. Uh, and even there, it's, it's very rare. You have to get very lucky with a constellation of how that might lead to something. You have to have something in return that you can trade them for. Now, uh, in the case of the, uh, of the various opposition groups, all the way from Free Syrian Army secular groups to Nusra, which is the Al-Qaeda affiliate, to ISIS, which is uh, started in Iraq and obviously made its way into Syria, uh, it's very different. Sometimes when they feel like they have a high-value prisoner, they will execute him for shock value. It's kind of and then create recruiting videos for their own people. Uh, so you have to be generally creating the uh, some kind of an illusion that this is a high value asset is very very dangerous for the person. It's better to say, listen, this person has really no value. What little value he has, I can try to get you something for in the form of some kind of other favor. Uh, and that really depends on, again, on who the group is. It's, I can't negotiate with ISIS. So it really, it, it, the range of groups that have hostages that can lead to good outcomes when you get involved is really small. Most of the times, if I'm lucky, what I can get is proof of life. Wow. That's super interesting. I did not understand that the, if, if, if a regime uh, is holding somebody, it's a different, I, I immediately went to, um, uh, when uh, Lisa Ling's uh, sister, what was her, I forgot her name, um, the journalist was being held in North Korea. Uh, that was horrifying. No, she was, no, she wasn't. Where was that? I, I can't even remember now. This is, this, this was like 10 years ago when Bill Clinton went, remember? And he, yeah. yeah. Um, anyways, I, I'm just very curious. Like, what did they barter at the end of the day? Was it just Bill Clinton? <laughs> Sometimes, yeah, in some cases, when it's a regime, then you know you might want to do it for good press, but it's very, very rare. And the problem with the regime, in particular the Syrian regime, is you have people who are languishing in Syrian jails for thirty years, uh, Westerners, and of course many Syrians. And so, mm -hmm. for them, at some point, releasing the person, which would then provide evidence of all the abuse and torture, not only of the individual but of others who have been in these in these uh, dungeons, 
the regime has no incentive in doing that. So the window for a happy outcome is generally really very small. And the problem with the regime is for them, you really have to first create the conditions for the release before you even negotiate anything. You know, you have to know that you're going to, you're talking to someone who has an incentive in making it happen. And then you have to provide them the avenue for complete plausible deniability. So you have to stage it in a way where they can say, this was a militia that claims to be one of ours. It's from the coastal region. Uh, but in fact, we have no control over these guys. These guys are all drugged on amphetamines. And so we really, you know, but thank God with heroic efforts of our intelligence community, we're able to, you know, liberate this person. So you have to sort of play along with that script. And if you can't produce all that in advance of a negotiation, they simply have no incentive and even admitting that they have a person, once they admit it, the cat's out of the bag, and then it's the pottery bond rule, but then they're responsible for anything that happens to that person. And so it's a, it's a really hard thing, and it's, it's a lot of heartbreak involved because it's very, there are very few happy outcomes to these things. I mean, you really want people just not to go into these regions. And it, 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 what makes me so angry, again, is that it, you, know, you have people who just are you know, starry-eyed and think it's just an adventure. It's like just kind of hiking the Appalachian Trail um, and don't really understand how gruesome, how medieval it is and how senseless the killings. In other words, you have, I know doctors and aid workers who uh, asked people from Turkey to take him to a field hospital in Aleppo just to treat children who got kidnapped by the same groups that they were trying to help. So this is not rational anymore. It's a country that's been completely obliterated. So, so most people who go into Syria really just don't understand the risks that they're taking. The same thing goes for many journalists, especially freelance journalists. Um, as somebody who has worked in Libya, I will tell you, I would not go there uh, if you offered me $7 million at this point. Uh, and I same you say starry eyed and I was young and did not understand where I was going, or at least I wasn't the information I was that was being provided to me when I was working for the organization. Um, and weeks after we were forced to leave, uh, the beheadings on the beach by ISIS happened. So, um, you know, sometimes it's, as, as you know too well, it's like things can change in a snap. The security situation can change in a snap. And unless you're, you know, even the most sophisticated um, analysis of the situation, it's, it's, it's like it's like an air, something changes in the air. And uh, you did have you... to be, sorry, just one thing go on ahead, Libya, because no, we're really active in Libya and even there too, you really have to have you have to really know where you can go and where you can't go. You might be able to go to, to Tripoli, but you're not going to be able to go to Sirte. You certainly go, can't go to the east because Haftar's yes. word is no good. Uh, and you can't go to Benghazi. So it, it, unless you really are very familiar and you're comfortable with the local language and you can pick up on nuances and dangers right. before that, uh, you know, this is, this is, we're just not prepared for that kind of an environment. Yeah, it's very, That's very right. hard. We did not go east. That was uh, definitely a rule. Right. Uh, but, you know, we went to Sabratha, which was uh, supposedly safer. And then that's where they beheaded everybody on the beach. So he say, um, last question for you is, were you afraid that have you ever been afraid of being in a situation in which you could, as the negotiator, be held hostage yourself, taken hostage yourself? Yeah. Uh, I mean, if, if I if I wasn't afraid and didn't have the ability to be afraid, I wouldn't be alive. I mean, it's only a silly person would say he or she's not afraid. But uh, I, I took all the precautions I could. There were two situations where I had to sort of surrender myself. One was the night in Beirut where I had to give up all my phone devices or any kind of connection to the outside world. But I knew that the person who had arranged for it was one, uh, is a person I, is a dear friend. I've trusted him. I would trust him with my life for many years. Uh, and he arranged it and guaranteed I'd be safe. And that was good enough for me. And then the only other situation where I didn't control it, where I didn't really control the escape routes, and the person was the, the sort of final conversation with the head drug dealer, where I had to take the risk of meeting him and wasn't entirely sure whether he had been warned about me because I had to work my way to him through his associates. Uh, and it wasn't clear to me whether he had been warned. Fortunately, he hadn't been. And there was a little moment where I did map out a contingency plan with friends there, but th there was certainly a certain risk I was taking there. Those were the two moments in the course of these 20 days where, uh, you know, I, where I took a certain risk that might be reckless in a particular context. Daniel, you have a certain level of courage that uh, <laughs> I do not have. This is, this is a fascinating story, fascinating line of work. Um, you can check out Daniel Levine's book, Proof of Life, 20 Days on the Hunt for a Missing Person in the Middle East. Super interesting. Um, 
really appreciate your time, uh, you know, joining us today. Published by Algonquin Books, too. I think we have the, the book up on screen right now, and so you can check it out. We'll put the information in the in our info section so people can purchase it right away. But thank you so much for joining Thanks us. Thanks so much, Emika. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. All right, we will be right back with our amazing panel. We have Natalie Schur and Jordan Zachern here. <laughs> what is going on, Jordan? <laughs> what is? <laughs> he just he's he's like sees control of my mind, so I wanted to give it a visual. Oh, welcome back. We have Jordan Zacher in here who's freaking me out right now. Uh, Jordan is, of course, the immediate producer with a more progressive union. He is also uh, the founder of Progressive Everywhere, Progressives Everywhere newsletter. Natalie Schur is a writer here. You've seen her in Jacobin, in these times, The Nation, The Atlantic, BuzzFeed, Los Angeles uh, Times, etc. Daily Beast, all the places. Uh, she, you know, Natalie... You're out of the curve. You told us not to wear it. We didn't have to wear the masks outside. And then Joe Biden was like, that Natalie woman. I don't listen to many progressives, but I'll listen to her. So maybe you've got his ear. Yeah, I mean, I, I wish he would have taken something else seriously before the mask outdoors recommendation. That wouldn't have been my number one thing. But uh, sure, Mr. Biden, I hope you appreciate the column. <laughs> All right, guys, we have a crisis on Capitol Hill right now with a woman named Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, I'm 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 like glad that uh, at least they're trying to censor her, but like uh, she, of course, made uh, comments, remarks about the Holocaust uh, just a couple of days ago, in which her own party called out. Uh, so let's 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 show uh, what Brad Schneider, his representative from Illinois, uh, said about Marjorie Taylor Greene. Well, I'm going to focus on what she said here with respect to the Holocaust. Uh, you know, she's equating the national response to a, a pandemic. Uh, to the murder of six million Jews. Uh, that is reprehensible and, and needs to be called out and she should be censured for this. Uh, do I think she should be expelled from the House? Absolutely. But at this moment, the, the tool we have is censure. And uh, I, I'm, looking for, I'm hoping we will bring it to the House uh, floor uh, when we get back. Well, I'm gonna... oh, sorry, I have not mastered Zoom after all these, <laughs> all this time. So, um... You know, will censoring uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene make a difference in her behavior, in her colleagues' behaviors? Is it likely to happen? I mean, her own party called her out. Uh, Kevin McCarthy issued a strongly worded statement about her yesterday and then blamed the Democrats for it for some reason. Um, I'll go to Natalie first. What, what do you think? Is this going to make a difference? And will it prevent others from acting like she has recently? Uh, well, I would say the answer to both questions is pretty unequivocally no. Uh, and I think that Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, illustrates a problem that the GOP has more and more and will have going forward, which is that it has these outrageous lunatics uh, running for office specifically to get media attention, uh, that they are feeding off of this exact sort of controversy and all of the clicks and comments and likes it generates and uh, that they've sort of mastered that ecosystem, which is how they got elected. Uh, so they have a completely bizarre set of incentives. And a lot of people say, you know, just stop paying attention to them, stop paying attention to them, which, you know, a lot of people did with Trump too. And he's definitely the one who I think pioneered this particular model, at least this iteration of it that we're seeing for the past couple of years. Uh, but it's awfully difficult to just ignore <laughs> the president or a prominent national lawmaker. So I don't I don't really know what the answer is there. But I, I don't know how you can, you know, censure Marjorie Taylor Greene in a way that affects her. Uh, because she's looking for people to be mad. She's looking for attention. Yeah. And she's one of the most successful small dollar fundraisers, uh, as far as I understand, in congressional history because of it. So it's a doozy. Well, it's interesting you say that because, you know, she will definitely become a martyr as a result. And I'm sure her fundraising uh, will increase. And then it might, you know, might likely weaken their ability to do it again when it's needed. But Jordan, I mean... Uh, if you're going to censure Marjorie Taylor Greene for anything, would it be this or something else? Or <laughs> no, but really, I mean, is it is she going to be a martyr now? Is this kind of yeah. where she's going? 
she's looking to be canceled so she can say she was canceled. Like Rick Santorum got fired from CNN after five years of racism. And then he went on Newsmax or some other garbage channel and said, uh, this is cancel culture. Um, so this is what she wants. It's what they're doing. I mean, it's, the thing is like, it's not just an isolated incident. You know, she's been touring around with Matt Gates, who is like a sex predator and the Republican party has not kicked him out, uh, has not stripped him of his roles, even though they, they did Liz Cheney, who again, not a martyr, Liz Cheney's awful, but you know, they, they, they the Republican party is built to reward this. The, the entire democratic system is built to reward this due to gerrymandering and creating safe districts for people like Marjorie Taylor Greene. To win a primary in her district, you have to be out of your mind. Like that is the bar that she sets. You have to be out of your mind to, to win a primary in her district. The same thing with Mo Brooks, uh, Paul, Paul Andy Biggs or whatever their name is. All those people, their job is to be insane to raise money. And they keep dragging the party to the right. And until again, there's democracy, democratic reform and filibuster and gerrymandering, none of it's going to change. And in fact, Democrats, you know, the media also kind of plays into it because they'll keep showing it on uh, Morning Joe. They'll keep showing it uh, on all these places. And again, like Natalie said, you can't ignore it because it's there and it's happening, but they allow people like this to set the terms of the debate, right? Like at the same time that they say it's anti-Semitic to oppose Israel killing people, um, you know, they, they allow Republicans to say that. They also allow Republicans to say this, you know, to say, Mar have Marjorie Taylor Greene say, right. uh, you know, this is the Holocaust. So they allow, they get the terms of the debate and they also get the terms of democracy. And so the only way to stop it mm. is to change both things. I love that. Uh, related, <laughs> speaking of, of working with the crazies and the filibuster and democracy reform, we have uh, our senators, Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin, the, 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 what is that thing where like they, they team up as buddies, that buddy show, remember that show? Bosom Buddies, yeah, the Bosom Buddies of the Senate. I was going with something, but I don't know where sure. it is. Sure. Me. You know when you're like in the middle of a thought and you, you're like, oh, that thing, and then it just fleets out halfway through your sentence. You're like, oh, God. Every time it's I'm on a, the show. It's been a day, guys. It's been a day. Um, so uh, they were on MSNBC talking about their willingness to work with Republicans, because this is the party. This is the party you should be working with at this moment. Let's play that clip. While two of the Democratic holdouts on abolishing the filibuster, Senators Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema released a rare joint statement urging their Republican colleagues to, quote, work with us, adding that the commission is a, quote, critical step to ensuring our nation never has to endure an attack at the hands of our countrymen again. But Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell is still not on board. I think this is a purely political exercise that adds nothing to the sum total of information. It doesn't allow anyone to get away with anything. Uh, all of these aspects of it have, are being dealt with in one way or another already. Uh, so, Willie, uh, one person who strongly disagrees with that and has let Mitch McConnell know that, uh, based on my reporting, Senator Joe Manchin, who, who has told several Republicans uh, that he wants to work with them. He is bending over backwards to negotiate with them, bending over backwards to make sure there's bipartisanship. And, and Joe Manchin's opinion, based on uh, several sources, is, okay, we can debate the outlines of an infrastructure bill. I get that. We can debate the outlines of a police reform bill. Different people have different views. We can debate COVID relief, but, but for, for Joe Manchin, uh, he, he believes this is about He believes that this is not about politics. This is about America. This is about the country. This is about protecting what is most sacred. Uh, and um, I just, I, I don't know. I, I based based on what I'm hearing. Uh, Joe Manchin expects Republicans to meet him halfway and not block this 9-11 style commission. There's no question about it, and he doesn't want to go to the nuclear option and get rid of the filibuster. He wants to talk this out and get 60, Republic 60 total votes for this, which would mean he needs 10 Republicans on board. And you have to ask, Joe, what are Republicans afraid of? If you look inside the proposal, inside this plan, the commission calls for a 10-person panel split evenly between yeah. <laughs> All right, Jordan, let's go to you first. Uh, what on earth is Mansion's endgame here? Where's I, you know, he going? I don't, with him in cinema, I, I don't know if it's their 
foolish or it's like a kink and they love being shamed and fooled and just called out and made idiots of. I mean, they got to know that this is not going to happen. They have to know. So they're either performing and acting like, uh, you know, oh, we tried, but we can't do it. Or they just love being punished. I don't know what it is because we're at the point where whatever it is, they just look stupid. You know, unless they get off mad, maybe I don't, I don't know, but they just look stupid and pathetic and sad. And again, we just talked about Marjorie Taylor Greene. I'm going to bring everything back to voting rights reform. You know, this is all going to go down the drain unless they move on that. And I'm kind of baffled. I think about it all the time. As you can see, I, I had uh, Joe Manchin behind me. And, you know, at some point, I think Democrats need to start putting pressure on them publicly. I know they're trying to give them their space to, to act like, yes, we are going to give you time to be bipartisan and whatnot. If they, if they can't get the one six, if they can't get the January sixth commission to move to them to move on that, you think they're going to move on voting rights? You think they're, they think they're going to move on any of that? And I think it's going to, it's going to come down to the actual Democrats, other than Chuck Schumer, coming out and putting pressure on both publicly and inside the caucus, because there are some Democrats that are a little squishy on a lot of the things of the For the People Act and other you know, infrastructure that they want to you know bring back the the salt tax exemption. They want to not have the corporate tax rates raised. It's going to take the rest of the Democrats to come together and put the pressure on. You know, I'm almost less annoyed by Manchin and Cinema because I know they're idiots and weirdos than the rest of the Democrats hiding behind them. And I think that's what it's really gonna take. Yeah, it's interesting because, um, you know, it, the messaging could be very much around very easily. You're empowering Marjorie Taylor Greene. You're empower by your actions or failure to act and your uh, refusal to take on the filibuster, you are not empowering yourself. You are empowering the crazies who literally seize the Capitol. And you don't even want to go and investigate that as well. Um, Natalie, what do we do about uh, about these two? And, and obviously, and this is reported today in Politico, uh, Manchin even said that he has his own little internal caucus that is willing to back him up on other issues if the filibuster were to... Um, to be ended, which is great news, great news. He basically threatened like, oh, it's not just me. But what do we do about that? Yeah, I mean, going back to what I was saying about Marjorie Taylor Greene and you know media incentives, I think that Joe Manchin has those to some degree too. I mean, I think that he is absolutely relishing his role as the uh, you know center's gatekeeper, as the person who has been in the media, as far as I can tell, more than at any point in his career because of his position on the filibuster and his position as, uh, you know, the, the most moderate uh, hinge vote in the Democratic caucus. Um, and so I think that, you know, to some degree, I don't necessarily think that he's specifically a fiend for media attention as an endpoint in itself, the way that Marjorie Taylor Greene is. Uh, but I do think that he relishes his brand as, uh, you know, a bipartisan deal maker uh, in the Senate, which, you know, I, I think bipartisanship, I don't uh, worship it because I think it leads to uh, undesirable political outcomes. I'm not a centrist, uh, but <laughs> what's funny about Manchin is, you know, he worships it institutionally. Um, you know, I mean, I think that he thinks that there is, um, a sacrosanct value to bipartisanship as it works in the Senate, as if all of America is sitting in the Senate and has the same reverence for its rules and norms as he does. Um, you know, obviously, I I wish there was something that Joe Manchin wanted enough uh, to decide to nuke the filibuster over it, but I don't think he does because I don't think that he's a politician with specifically political or ideological goals. Uh, and so, you know, how to push someone like that into nuking one of the norms of the institution that he is specifically uh, enjoying as an end of itself, I, I'm not sure how that works. Uh, you know, if you wanted this commission more, I would personally say, gosh, I'd rather have the PRO Act, I'd rather have minimum wage, I'd rather have any number of things that we are very close to 50-51 votes on. But God, if he wants the January 6th commission, uh, I'd say, okay, then kill the filibuster over that. But he he doesn't want it enough. Uh, he doesn't want anything enough. And it, it's very stymieing. That's, that's a fascinating take. Um, so we have to figure out what is it that he cares about enough? Uh, Cole... All right, that's something to brainstorm on. Maybe Legacy. that's the strategy. 
legacy, Robert Byrd's, uh, uh, old clan hat. <laughs> <laughs> you reward him with that. I'm actually more confused by Kirsten Cinema, given what's happening in Arizona. You know, West Virginia, to some degree, yeah. for Democrats, a bit of a lost cause. Maybe Manchin thinks, well, I'm not going to get reelected, yeah. or, you know, I'm, I'm a special case because I got reelected already. Arizona is out of its mind right now. Republicans are stripping the, you know, stripping the Secretary of State, hope potentially of her, just basically her roles, her ability to defend lawsuits or pursue lawsuits. The recount's going forever, and they're just making things up as they go. They yep. are out of their minds there. They're passing, you know, so much voters, so many voter suppression laws. Cinema seems to be a very transactional and ambitious politician. She is basically begging to not be reelected because Democrats aren't going to support her. And, you know, there was just a, a vote that was like 80 percent of Democrats said, please kill the filibuster to get things done. And the elections are going to be rigged anyways. You know, there's going to be yeah. uh, partisan gerrymandering. There's going to be voter suppression. There's going to be a, a, an entire part of the Arizona legislature that doesn't even certify results, you know, they're going to be in charge of that. And so she, that's what baffles me. Joe Manchin is like a head injury, walking head injury. You know, he's just confusing and I don't know, but Kirsten Cinema is playing like 3D chess and, you know, I, not even playing on like- In a outer space. Yeah, she, I don't even know what she, she's doing. It's like, flo it's, it's yeah. floating. The chess pieces are in the air. It's like somebody's putting up, it's like somebody's putting up a giant boulder in front of her, like her, her car ride and she's just like well maybe i'll just crash into it I, it doesn't make any sense <laughs> to me instead of going around it i'm really curious what her approval ratings are in arizona and you know and i'm pretty familiar with arizona i don't know one person who likes her uh <laughs> so i'm really curious i mean just i'm not talking about like personal or but i mean politically people who are in office who are involved in the party uh very curious how this is gonna play out and who's gonna challenge her um i really hope it's a strong latina woman that would be in my mind, ideal. All right, guys, we got to wrap. Uh, Jordan's got to go work. Natalie, I'm sure, has to go work. Dorsey has to go to the Knicks game. And so we won't have a producer. <laughs> yes, the Knicks game. Real life events. Real life sorry. events are back. <laughs> oh, don't be sorry. I'm jealous. <laughs> don't be sorry. <laughs> don't be sorry. Uh, I'll do some shout outs. Thanks, guys, for joining us. We'll see you very soon. Kyler Asato says, I wonder what Sherrod Brown, chair of the Senate Banking Committee, is doing and saying on this. He can use this opportunity to help pick up another Senate seat. I assume that's in reference to the opening about Elizabeth Warren, but I'm not sure. Fascinating. Good good question. Uh, shout out to everybody in the live chats, all of our moderators. Thank you for keeping the space troll-free. Thank you for working those algorithms. We're going to have a great show tomorrow on Thursday. I know that we have Dr. Jim Zogby, who's going to be talking about the conflict in the Mideast, um, the history there, and what is potentially going to happen. Uh, he is somebody that uh, the, the Zionists have taken on for years. Uh, I always love talking to Dr. Zogby. He's back on the show tomorrow. And then later we have a run Chowdhury and Rep Rab here because uh, it's Thursday. We will see you tomorrow, same time, same place. Stay in solidarity. Oh, and shout out, happy birthday to Mike, one of our producers.